Welcome to the Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Demetrius, Besieger of Cities, Part 2. Welcome to the Alexander Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perticus to Cleopatra VII. My name is Dustin. And I'm Meredith. Last time on the Alexander Standard, we met Demetrius, the son of Antigonus. A lovable, ambitious, rambunctious wild child. He loved life and loved his dad. He flew high, he flew low. He was a king. He controlled Greece. But when he was called back to Anatolia to assist his father, tragedy struck at the Battle of Ipsos when Antigonus was killed, and the battle was lost, leaving Demetrius alone and on the run. Realizing that Dad was dead and the battle was lost, Demetrius gathered what forces were left and retreated to the Greek city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. He still had 9,000 troops. So even though he's hurt, really hurt, he's not completely defeated. I mean, he doesn't have a kingdom anymore, but he's got a pretty big army still, a huge navy, and a lot of money. Nevertheless, Demetrius was now surrounded by enemies, especially in the east. So he gathered his forces, his money, and his mom, who was hanging out in southern Anatolia, and started looking for a place to regroup. One of the things to remember in this discussion is that, although it is the case that the coalition members, especially Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, were carving up Antigonus' kingdom, as Plutarch says, like a dead carcass, Antigonus and Demetrius had a good bit of territory under their control, and cities allied with him, especially in Greece. So that's where Demetrius went next. And then there's Athens. But oh no. The Athenians refused to open their gates to Demetrius. See, I called it. Yeah, you did. You sure did. Not only did they refuse to open their gates, but they kicked out one of his wives, Deidamea, and sent her to another city though they swore that they uh, let her retain her royal accommodations. With no options left, Demetrius, all he could do was just ask Athens to return the ships that he had docked there, which they did, and he just proceeded on his way. Well, that sucks. But wait, hold on. Demetrius doesn't like it when Greek cities refuse to play ball. I'd imagine he'll probably remember this insult. Not that he could do anything about it right now. Next, Demetrius went to check on how his other Greek allies were doing. Unfortunately... He found out pretty quick that his situation in Greece was also in shambles. His garrisons and cities across Greece were getting expelled from their cities. Right and left. So now, we're going on to the year 300. Demetrius is on the run, a king without a kingdom. For the next seven years, he is running wild. But it wasn't all bad. Like we said, Demetrius was still a powerhouse. And now he was bouncing around, which made him quite the liability. To begin, he actually still had a few friends. Losing his grip on Greece, Demetrius left his uncle-in-law, Pyrrhus, king of Epirus, in charge of the remaining Greek holdings, whatever was left, while Demetrius himself went on some adventures. For instance, he immediately started ravaging the territory of Lysimachus in Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria. I gotta tell you, Meredith, we haven't had a chance to talk about Lysimachus in detail. I don't like that guy. Every time his name comes up, he's just backstabbing somebody. And I, I don't think that's fair of me, but it's just like, this is the vibe I'm getting. Because like, when I'm like, he immediately started ravaging Lysimachus' territory, and I'm just sitting there like, good. 
See, I, I find that a bit odd that you're like, I don't like him. He's all backstabby. Everyone's been backstabby. Right. I know. I have ab- this entire series. Yeah. I have no logical reasoning to this feeling. I'll tell you right now. I don't like Demetrius. Neither do I. Okay. Okay. So while he's attacking Lysimachus and Thrace, his luck actually started to turn a little bit. None of the other kings would send any help to Lysimachus. They didn't care about him any more than Demetrius. In fact, Plutarch says that the other kings were actually more worried about Lysimachus at this time, since he had gobbled up a lot of Antigonus's former territory, making him quite powerful. Another thing to consider is the fragility of alliances in the Hellenistic world. As we've seen time and time again, these commanders and kings are uh, really good at forming alliances, but not so good at holding them together. No sooner than they accomplish their goals, they immediately turn and start plotting to attack each other. And so Plutarch states that Demetrius was quite successful in pillaging Lysimachus's holdings. In doing so, he replenished his coffers, gained a lot of money, which succeeded in helping Demetrius boost the morale of his soldiers and maintain their allegiance. So that's the year 300. Info on Demetrius is a bit quiet for the next year or so. Um, he next pops up in 298, back on the scene and trying to navigate his fortunes through a beautiful thing called marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Is this number four? I think so. Yep, this will be number four. We already know that Demetrius was married to Phila, one of Cassander's sisters. Well, he already sent Phila to Cassander shortly after the Battle of Ipsos in 301 in an attempt to effect a reconciliation with her brother. Questionable success. Then he was, however, successful in establishing peace with Seleucus after proposing a marriage between Seleucus and Demetrius's daughter, Stratonike. A bit of sad news to report, however, is that shortly after the marriage between Stratonike and Seleucus, Demetrius's second wife, or maybe it's a third wife, Daedimea, died of an illness. That's number three. Thank you. She had been in Greece waiting for him to return, but had recently gone to join him in Anatolia. And when she got there, she got sick and bleh. They had a son together named Alexander, because why be original in anything, who apparently lived a good life in Egypt as a legitimate and honorable political hostage. Well, Demetrius knew the best way to get over the grief of losing one wife was to marry another one. And thus, the same year, with Seleucus's help, Demetrius married one of Ptolemy's daughters, a lady named Ptolemaeus. I'm going to throw a little incest in this for you. Not real incest, but just more leak. More like, it's just more like legal cest. Uh, Demetrius is her uncle. Her mom is Eurydice, who mm-hmm. was the sister of Phila. But we don't talk about that. Okay. He is on paper her uncle, but not like a blood-related uncle. No, not not blood from what we can see. Okay. So it's weird enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> not gross weird. No. Just weird dinner table conversation. Like, I, yeah, I know your mom. She's my sister-in-law. Yeah, semantics <laughs> weird. Thus, Demetrius had by now patched things up with two of his former enemies, Seleucus and Ptolemy. He then followed up the success by regaining some territory in the region of Cilicia in southern Anatolia. Unfortunately, nothing good lasts for too long, and no sooner than he patched things up with Seleucus did Seleucus immediately turn around and start making lots of demands, commanding Demetrius to cede the little bit of territory he'd managed to regain. Demetrius boldly refused, swearing that he would rather lose the Battle of Ipsos a thousand times over before giving a single city under his control to Seleucus. So he'd rather his dad die one thousand times. Exactly. 
Thank you for pointing that out because I didn't see that the first time until I was reading it to you. And I was like, I'd rather my dad die alone waiting for me to return <laughs> like a lost puppy. Uh, bracing for impact then, Demetrius started garrisoning his cities and preparing for new hostilities with Seleucus. Let's go dark a little bit again. So info on Demetrius is once again spotty for the next year or so. He is attested as continuing to retain control over various regions and cities in Asia Minor and the Near East. But all in all, things seem to be settling down a bit for Demetrius. So, in this moment of relative stability, do you think Demetrius has any unfinished business with anyone? Rhodes. No, Athens. Oh yes, Athens had refused to let him into the city. Let's see how they're doing. Not too good. A few years earlier, it seems, Athens had fallen under the control of a tyrant named Lacares, who was apparently quite oppressive. So, once again, in 295 now, Demetrius decides to liberate Athens. And this time, he doesn't ask nicely. He immediately takes his fleet and prepares a naval blockade. Unfortunately, the fleet hit a big storm, which destroyed most of his ships and a good chunk of his army. But that doesn't mean he's giving up. Instead, Demetrius immediately ordered the construction of a new fleet. Meanwhile, while he waited on this new fleet, he took his army into the Peloponnesus over in southern Greece and set out to reconsolidate his authority over the Greeks there. And ultimately, he was successful in doing just that. He regained the allegiance of the cities that had revolted from him. But it wasn't easy at first. In fact, Demetrius almost died in the process. Specifically, while he was besieging the city of Messini, Plutarch states that the bolt from a polistai or a catapult struck him in the face, passed through his jaw and into his mouth. I imagine it coming from like underneath the chin. Just imagine that like all of a sudden there's an arrow sticking out of your mouth. No, I just, I, it just took me back to Alexander so quickly. Or his, Demetrius's dad Antigonus, because he had like the arrow in the eye. Yeah. Well, these guys just love getting shot and then keeping going, you know? I wouldn't be surprised if Demetrius told somebody to shoot him. But somehow he survived, and his soldiers carried the day. Well, eventually he got his new fleet, and he proceeded to blockade Athens, like he said. Pretty soon a famine set in. Just like, you know, you and I were in there eating carrots and hummus during a little break. Yeah, people get hungry. When people get hungry, bad things happen. I'm still hungry. Yeah, that's right. Supposedly... The famine in Athens got so bad that there was a story of a certain family who was just sitting at home one day when all of a sudden, randomly, a mouse, a dead mouse, fell out of the ceiling while the father and the son were just hanging out in the same room. That detail matters because both father and son, overcome by hunger, began to fight each other viciously over who got to eat the dead mouse. And in case you're wondering, I don't know who won the fight. Finally, in early 294, after a long naval blockade, Demetrius succeeded in taking possession of Athens. Six years after they closed their gates to him and had refused him entrance into the city. Now, the Athenians also remembered their previous insult to Demetrius in 301. And they were afraid that Demetrius was going to remember it too. So, of course, Demetrius has got to make a big show of it, right? He ordered the entire population of the city to assemble in the theater. Then he surrounded all the stage areas and entrances with guards. He even had his bodyguards on stage. When Demetrius himself came on the stage, 
He looked like a tragic actor. And the Athenians were petrified. So what do you think he did? Evil villain monologue. They were surprised then, when Demetrius graciously granted a pardon to all the inhabitants of Athens. A merciful act that did a lot for his PR. Apparently for all his faults, Demetrius highly valued mercy as a quality in a ruler. Instead of raining blows upon them and enacting harsh punishments, he merely scolded them lightly and then teased them for making bad decisions in the past. In a frenzy of gratitude, the Athenians went crazy. They voted to give Demetrius complete control of the port city, the Piraeus, and he gladly accepted this gift. But all wasn't completely rosy. Demetrius remembered what happened last time, and he was going to make sure not to have a repeat. Thus, he immediately established a series of garrisons in Athens and the Piraeus to make sure they couldn't shake off his yoke again, to quote Plutarch. Nevertheless, Demetrius is back in control of Athens now, and he decides he's going to make sure that he controls the politics in the city. In a series of political reforms again, Demetrius abolishes the democratic institutions that were supposedly imposed by Polypericon or Cassander or somebody. No more rotation of offices. No more election of magistrates. Demetrius instead instituted an oligarchic system of prominent magistrates directly appointed by him from among the most prominent citizens of Athens. Which really means that this wasn't even an oligarchy, but more like tyrants appointed by a king. But who's counting? So it looks like Demetrius' luck is going up again. Let's keep this ride going. With Athens secure, Demetrius immediately got to work on consolidating his control over the rest of southern Greece. This time, that means Sparta. With apparent ease, Demetrius defeated the Spartans and their king Archidamus, not once, but twice. And then, he marched straight to Sparta and took 500 hostages, but then he declined to take the city by force because he figured he had done enough. I actually bet that people then felt like taking Sparta by force was a bad luck or something like that because this had happened two or three times now where like somebody defeats the Spartans, gets right up to the city borders and then is like, nah. So he does all that and then he just leaves. Well, speaking of bad luck, Plutarch says that Demetrius was continually subject to a lot of ups and downs because right when it seemed that everything was going his way again, he got some bad news. While he was regaining his power in Greece, both Lysimachus and Ptolemy had begun conquering Demetrius's cities and territory in Asia Minor and the island of Cyprus. In particular, Ptolemy had besieged the city of Salamis in Cyprus, where Demetrius's mother and his children were currently residing, and captured them. But anyway, despite that mere dip in fortune, Demetrius was about to have a major breakthrough. Meredith, oh Meredith, does the year 294 mean anything to you? I think Cassander is dead and Philip is dead and Antipater's killed his mom and Alex is asking for help to kick out Antipater. That's exactly right. I knew it. As we saw in our last three episodes, the kingdom of Macedon was going through some rocky times. Cassander did his best to keep Macedon stable amidst constant opposition. Unfortunately, he was defeated by tuberculosis in 297, as was his eldest son and successor, Philip IV, later that year. 
Everything was supposedly set up to facilitate the joint rule of his two younger sons, Antipater I and Alexander V, but they couldn't get along and soon fell into a civil war in 294. And as we saw in our last episode, then, Alexander V simultaneously summoned Pyrrhus, king of Epirus, and Demetrius, king of something, to help Alexander kick out his elder brother, Antipater. Both said yes, Pyrrhus got there first, did his job, took his pay, went home, Demetrius showed up, and it was a sticky situation, and both men were suspicious of each other. Eventually, after a little hissing and spitting, Demetrius succeeded in killing the young king Alexander V in 294. Everyone was holding their breath to see what would happen next, but in a move that can best be described as the obvious next step on one side, and the cynical but completely understandable, fine, I'm tired of fighting on the other side, Demetrius declared himself as the king of Macedon, and the Macedonians just said, sure, whatever. So look at this! <laughs> Over the course of seven oh, years, God. Demetrius went from being a homeless king with no friends in 301 to king of Macedon with lots of friends in 294. Here's some more good news. Actual good news. Remember that Ptolemy had captured Demetrius's mom and his children? Yes. Uh, well, he let him go, and he gave them gifts and honors. So Demetrius is back on top! Yay! But what did we say about Demetrius? What do we say what he does when he's in a good place, Meredith? Sleeps with prostitutes and temples. That's specifically what he does, yes. <laughs> but in general, he flushes all of his good fortune straight down the crapper. Yeah. So let's see how long it takes him to mess this up. So happy new year to 293. Demetrius immediately went to work rebuilding Macedonian strength. First... He reestablished Macedonian dominance over Thessaly, that northern region of Greece on their southern border. But Meredith, let's talk about a little goober we haven't mentioned in a long time. Thebes. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say Polypericon. I'm like, no, he's dead. Pretty sure Polypericon is, in fact, dead at this time. Thebes, though. Okay. Yeah, Thebes. So they recently got rebuilt by Cassander. Well, Demetrius set his eyes on Thebes next. Now, at first, Thebes was acting smart. Almost like they learned their lesson. And they sent him favorable terms. But oh no! Sparta is being Sparta again. And they got this new fancy king named Cleonymus. And he brought his fancy army into Thebes. And the Thebans decided that they weren't um, going to be nice about it after all. And you know what? They wanted to fight about it. So Demetrius brought up his giant siege engines. God, where have those been parked? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's just like you drive by a front yard. It's got five cars with no wheels up on cinder blocks. <laughs> it's like the other day when I was going to work and like all of a sudden the Air Force is like, let's just haul this giant plane down 495. That won't screw anything up. And then traffic was backed up. So them giant siege engines, they're back. Well, this scared the bejesus out of Cleonymus and his Spartans, and they all ran back to Sparta. Uh-oh. Thebes decided to surrender after all. Okay, so everything's good, right? Just quick disagreement. Thebes surrendered. We're all good. No, 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 no. A year or so later in 291, as soon as Demetrius turned his back, Thebes rebelled again. Well, that tears it. Now Demetrius laid siege to Thebes for real. And this time, he means it. He brought out the famous siege engine, the Halepolis, the city taker. Remember what you said earlier about how inefficient these things were? Yes. 
Like, it's so big, how could this ever be useful? Particularly that... The battering ram? They needed a thousand men. There's a thousand. Well, unfortunately, the city taker was so big and hard to move that, get this, in the course of two months, it had only moved a quarter of a mile. That's my thing. Yep. You build up... That's why, like, battering rams are a waste in Age of Empires, because you build them and they just take for freaking ever to get wherever you need them to go. Yeah, I would play Rome Total War, and you build a battering ram, it doesn't matter, because if they've got stone walls, then the turrets are just going to set it on fire anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that thing, over the course of two months, only moved a quarter of a mile, or around 400 meters. This meant that the Thebans had plenty of time to dig in and actually make a respectable defense. It's not like the citizens of Tyre watching Alexander build a land bridge, which I'm sure took a long time, but just was like impending doom. This is like, oh, we've got time to plan, store up food, hell, leave if we want to. (laughs) Yeah, I think you make a good point. In fact, I would say it's even furthermore, like they're kind of opposites of each other. Like Tyre's like, no one can take this city. Oh my god, he's taking this city. Whereas with Thebes, it's like, Oh my god, he's going to take the city. Oh, we're fine. Plutarch says that Demetrius refused to give up, even though he lost a lot of soldiers in the process. In fact, he almost died one more time. This time when he was pierced through the neck by a catapult. Everybody's just trying to be like Alexander. I know, and Demetrius would be the guy to be like, Hey man, I want to get a neck piercing. It's going to be sweet. Still, Demetrius refused to give up, and finally, after a long, drawn-out effort, he finally retook Thebes. Okay, and so, Demetrius walks into Thebes. The citizens were petrified at what he was going to do in revenge for their betrayal. What do you think he did? Torch that sucker. Nope. Just like at Athens, Demetrius was extremely lenient. He only executed 13 of the ringleaders, banished some other ones, and then pardoned everybody else. But keeping busy, Demetrius next founded a new city. Don't overthink it. What do you think he called this one? Demetrius. Exactly. Two in a row. I mean, Alexander had like 70 Alexandrias. So let's move on to 290. Things are kind of quiet for Demetrius for a while. But late that year, Demetrius said, what the hell? Let's get married again. Oh, well, one of them did die. Yeah, so he still got Phila, Eurydice, and Ptolemaeus. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Five overall for current, so Ptolemaeus not the favorite wife anymore. Nah, I don't really think she ever was. You see, this lady was called Lanassa, who was currently the wife of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. She straight up leaves his ass. Oh, my goodness. Apparently... Lanassa decided that Pyrrhus was paying too much attention to his barbarian wives, so she left him. Then she moved to the Greek... Go ahead. Because she's a classy, classy Greek lady? Yeah, but then she's like, hey, this guy's got other wives that he pays too much attention to. I'm going to go to this guy who's been married four times. Well, she's going to be like the hot new wife. It's true. And he's going to forget all the other wives and love her more. <laughs> Not Robin Brown. Yeah. No, not Robin from Sister McIves, no. And we call Sister Wives Sister McIves, and we don't know why. So she hung out at the Greek city of Corsaira for a while, the island city of Corsaira. But she really wanted a royal marriage. 
And there was Demetrius, who had developed quite the reputation for being fond of marrying women. So she just sent him some messages to come pick her up at Corsaira, big boy. And he did. And they got married. And he left a garrison in Corsaira. Oh, okay, never mind. And then he went home. I know, it's pretty flashy. And then it was like, okay. I mean, it's just like, it's not contradicting us. It's like, she wanted to get married to Demetrius. He said yes. But it would appear that Pyrrhus was rather upset with this. Because he pretty quickly started attacking Demetrius and chipping away at his, at his Macedonian territory. And indeed, over the course of 290 and into 289, Pyrrhus and Demetrius became involved in some inconclusive shoving matches. Pyrrhus invaded while Demetrius was sick. Demetrius was roused to action out of fear, hastily gathered an army, then pushed Pyrrhus back. The one significant thing here was that when Pyrrhus got back to Epirus, he started receiving messages from all the other kings, encouraging him to keep up the fight against Demetrius. It seems that the rest of the kings weren't happy with Demetrius, and were starting to conspire against him. Furthermore, in one of the major battles against Demetrius' generals, Pyrrhus scored a big victory, killing many of Demetrius' soldiers and taking 5,000 prisoners. Plutarch points out that the Macedonians back home actually weren't angry at Pyrrhus for this. To the Macedonian people, the perception was that Pyrrhus was the only one of the kings who actually captured the warrior-conquering spirit of Alexander the Great. All the other kings, to their minds just pretended at the majesty of Alexander, especially Demetrius. And it seems that Demetrius was developing quite a strong reputation for partying and extravagance in Macedon. I know you want some examples. He reportedly wore luxurious clothes such as fancy hats, purple robes lined with gold, and then inversely, golden shoes lined with purple. He also began neglecting his kingly responsibilities. It became nearly impossible to get an audience with King Demetrius, and even if you could get a meeting, he was harsh and rude. For instance, one time an embassy of the Athenians came to Macedon, and he kept them waiting for two years. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought you were going to say two hours. I was going to no. be like, well, if there's snacks, that's fine. But <laughs> Better bring a lot of snacks. Imagine going back to the green room and be like, oh, we forgot to feed them. Sir, they're dead. But the sources point out the irony here was that he wanted to keep Athens on his good side. And he kept those guys waiting for two years. Another time, the Spartans sent a single ambassador to Demetrius. When he heard about this, he was offended. And he said, what do you mean? Have the Spartans sent only one envoy? To this, the Spartan replied, yes, O king, to one man. Oh. Yeah, I was, I was like, <laughs> ouch. Yeah, it's one of those things like, I guess your math is correct, Spartan dude. This other time, Demetrius was passing through a town and he actually seemed to be in a good mood. You're going to hate this. All of a sudden, a crowd of common people approached him with a bunch of written petitions. Okay. He calmly took all of them, folded them up, put them beside his cloak. But then when he was crossing a nearby bridge, he just threw all the petitions in the river. That's littering. Yes, it is, sir. But he could be snapped out of it at times. One of my favorite stories. On one occasion, Demetrius was passing through an area and another crowd gathered. An old lady began to shout at Demetrius, repeatedly demanding an audience. When Demetrius said, I don't have time, the old woman, without skipping a beat, screamed in response, Then don't be a king! Well, this apparently struck a nerve with Demetrius because he stopped, went back to his palace, canceled all his other business, and spent days granting an audience to anyone who wanted to see him, starting with the old lady. 
and then he killed her. Yep, that's all we know. Mm. But again, you can't you can say what you want, but Demetrius certainly wasn't lazy, nor was he forgetful. Demetrius apparently remained intent on reclaiming everything his dad had lost in Asia. To that end, he began assembling a massive army and fleet. See, this is just wasteful. Yeah, it's about to get real stupid. Hold what you have. Uh-huh, so that you don't lose everything you've got. Okay, to that end, if Plutarch is to be believed, Demetrius had already assembled an army of 98,000 infantry and 12,000 cavalry and was also overseeing a fleet of 500 ships. Plutarch states that no commander had possessed an army that large since the days of Alexander the Great. Well, let's take it into the next year. A lot of people took note of what Demetrius was doing, especially Seleucus, Ptolemy, and Lysimachus, who in early 288 formed a new alliance. Remember the size of that army. 98,000 infantry, 12,000 cavalry. And like I said, this new alliance also sent invitations to Pyrrhus over in Epirus, who gladly accepted the invite. And so the new war began. Demetrius acted fast and immediately attacked Lysimachus in Thrace. But he had to turn around and go back when he heard that Pyrrhus had, like, overran Macedon. I mean, deep in Macedonian territory, to the point that Pyrrhus had even captured the city of Beroea, which was the second most important city in Macedon after the capital of Pella. This apparently freaked out the Macedonian people. Okay, Demetrius turns around, and he advanced against Pyrrhus with his huge army of 110,000. But oh no. All of a sudden, local people in Beroea started talking about how awesome Pyrrhus was. At first, Demetrius wasn't worried. He was a Macedonian. Pyrrhus was a foreigner. He's got nothing to worry about. But then it happened. Slowly, but steadily. Demetrius' soldiers were defecting over to Pyrrhus, and it seemed to start a snowball effect. One defection led to another one, which led to a bigger defection and an even bigger defection. Pretty soon, huge chunks of Demetrius' army were defecting to Pyrrhus. People started talking about how much they hated Demetrius and were tired of fighting under him. They wanted to be rid of Demetrius, and if Pyrrhus was the guy to do it, then that was fine in their book. Eventually, Demetrius' advisors encouraged him to make a retreat with what was left of his army. And so, the king of Flash, Demetrius, put on a farmer's hat and some dirty soldier's clothes and escaped into the night. Pyrrhus then, without even having to strike a single blow, marched over, took Demetrius' camp, and immediately declared himself king of Macedon. Demetrius had been king for seven years. But he's not down. This has happened before. Demetrius immediately went to the city of Cassandrea, where his first wife, Phila, was staying. She had stuck with Demetrius through thick and thin, all the ups and downs, all the stupidity of his career. And I wouldn't mention that unless that was about to stop. Apparently, she was so fed up with Demetrius that she refused to see him, but instead drank poison and died. I feel like there were a lot of middle steps that could have been taken before yep. we jumped to that. Divorce was an option. I mean, <laughs> Just not opening the door, you know. Yeah, she was already there because he wasn't going to stay very long. Okay, well, that sucks. But Demetrius isn't out. He's got friends in Greece, right? That's where all this started. 
So that's where he's going to go next. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're going to think that none of the Greeks are going to take him in. Well, that didn't happen. Not exactly. Thebes, of all people, kept their word and welcomed Demetrius in. But Athens, once more, refused and immediately revolted against Demetrius. What's worse, they even started to revoke all those honors they'd given him before. Well, hell no to that, said Demetrius. He immediately lay siege to Athens, attempting to force their submission. And apparently he was making progress because the Athenians were freaked out and had to ask for help from Pyrrhus, the newfangled king of Macedon. Well, what happened next was a little weird. The Athenians supposedly sent out an ambassador to negotiate with Demetrius, and for an unknown reason, even to Plutarch, Demetrius agreed to leave. Just like before then, Demetrius gathered up his remaining forces, which still amounted to about 11,000 soldiers, and departed to Asia to continue the war there. But again, Demetrius's luck just bounces up and down. By 287, he landed in Asia Minor. And over the course of the next couple of years into 286, he actually started making significant progress there in attacking cities under the control of Lysimachus. Many of those cities surrendered to him willingly. Others captured by force. Some of Lysimachus's generals even defected to Demetrius, bringing him even more troops. In fact, Pyrrhus even made a treaty with Demetrius after taking his whole kingdom. But don't worry, Pyrrhus is lying. Oh, 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 but then Demetrius screwed up again. Eventually, Lysimachus' son, Agathocles, arrived with a sizable army against Demetrius. Instead of fighting Agathocles, Demetrius did what kind of appeared to be the smart move and retreated deeper into Anatolia, into the region of Phrygia. Do you remember Phrygia? That's where Demetrius grew up. He's home. So he left. Apparently, uh, Demetrius had the dumbass idea of going further east, deep into Asia. Places like Armenia and Medea in particular, hoping that those regions would revolt. Unfortunately, Agathocles followed him. And even though Plutarch said that Demetrius had the advantage in their engagements, he had a bigger problem. Supplies. And also, he lost a bunch of his men crossing a river. These strange maneuvers and subsequent hardships confused Demetrius' soldiers, to the point where some of them left note in, in front of his tent that said something like, O oh, child of blind and old Antigonus, where are we going? And so, as you can see then, uh, Demetrius' luck is turning south again. Well, while he's wandering around in eastern Anatolia, Pyrrhus decided to go ahead and mop up the rest of Demetrius' loyal forces in Greece. That's right! Demetrius still had territory and cities loyal to him in Greece. So Pyrrhus is going to go after all of them. Finally, in late 286, Demetrius realized that his daring eastern expedition was a total failure. His army was starving. He may have lost 8,000 soldiers in the process. To make things worse, he was trapped. Agathocles was blocking all the passages to return west. Tracing his steps south then, he wandered into the territory of his son-in-law. Seleucus. Demetrius lost his ego, it seems, and he wrote an emotional plea to Seleucus, begging not to be attacked, promising to be on good behavior, and asking only for safe passage and supplies. Apparently, Seleucus was moved by this request, and he initially agreed to allow Demetrius to stay for a few months in his territory and promised to send him supplies. Unfortunately, a lot of Seleucus' advisors began to remind the king that Demetrius was kind of a wild card uh, and full of ambition. Basically, wherever this guy goes, bad times follow. Thinking twice then. Seleucus began to uh, put very strict terms on Demetrius, to the point where the situation was unbearable. 
and Demetrius was essentially forced to attack and pillage the surrounding area. Well, this basically confirmed everything that Seleucus' advisors had warned him about. He immediately started attacking Demetrius. And believe it or not, Demetrius actually did quite well. It doesn't seem that he was able to really go on the offensive against Seleucus, but every time Seleucus sent an army against Demetrius, he either survived or just outright won. In fact, Demetrius started gaining a little territory in Cilicia near the southern border and even got close to capturing Seleucus one night in a daring sneak attack. But alas, he could never seal the deal. Seleucus was just too big to defeat. Eventually then, in early 285, after a series of battles, Seleucus did a boss move. What happens next is eloquently recounted by So You Think You Can Rule Persia. So we definitely recommend you go hear their awesome episode on Seleucus for this one too. After some fighting in northern Syria, Seleucus decided he had enough. According to the historian Polyinus, finally somebody other than Plutarch, during the final battle, Seleucus took off his helmet advanced in front of his army, apparently by himself, and shouted to Demetrius' soldiers, How long will you be so mad as you follow the fortunes of a bandit who is almost starving when your merits could find their reward with a king who reigns in affluence? You could share with him in a kingdom, not depending on hope, but an actual possession. Basically, like, why are y'all supporting such a loser? Well, Demetrius' army thought he had a good point. And so they defected from Demetrius en masse to Seleucus and held him as king, which is weird because he was already a king, but I guess it's the thought that matters. Believe it or not, Demetrius still wasn't defeated. I'm just kidding. He was totally defeated. Okay, I was like, I don't understand where else we can go. (laughs) And he's like, I don't understand. And frankly, I'm going to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) He did run and hide in the woods for a little while, apparently debating on whether to surrender, run away kill himself, or keep fighting. Lots of choices. Lots of ideas. Finally, though, while he was debating it, Seleucus helped him make up his mind by surrounding him with a thousand soldiers. And that convinced him to surrender. In the end, Seleucus chose not to kill Demetrius, but kept his father-in-law as a prisoner in northern Syria in very luxurious captivity. And to reiterate, Demetrius had it good. Plutarch, ugh, him again, states that Seleucus set Demetrius up with a comfy lifestyle, lots of money and accommodations, royal courses for walking and riding, parks to hunt in, unlimited visits from friends, as long as those friends also happened to be in prison. But apparently people kept telling Demetrius to keep his head up because he was going to be set free in no time. So that may have been Seleucus trolling him. Because those prisoners, those people came from Seleucus to tell him those things. But believe it or not, Meredith, Demetrius still had friends out there uh, there were still cities in Greece loyal to him. Furthermore, a guy after my own heart, his own son, Antigonus II, Gonatas, was in charge of those cities loyal to Demetrius. Demetrius was pretty sad now. He wrote to all of his friends and family not to believe anything they heard from Seleucus or anyone else, but to consider him dead. Little Antigonus II, however, refused to give up and begged Seleucus to free Demetrius, promising to surrender what was left of Demetrius' kingdom and even offered to trade places with his dad. Other cities also joined in these supplications, but to no avail. Demetrius, it seemed, was too dangerous to be let out. Gradually, Demetrius got used to his captivity and actually started to enjoy himself, spending his time hunting, exercising, or riding. Eventually, though, Plutarch says that Demetrius got bored 
and turned to darker habits. He started gambling and drinking more and more, to the point that it became how he spent most of his time. Plutarch says that this may have been so that Demetrius could keep his mind off of all that he lost, which totally sounds like legit depression. In any case, Demetrius simply drank his feelings away, giving up on life and realizing that he had squandered so many opportunities with recklessness and ambition. This went on for the next three years, according to Plutarch. Hoden states that Demetrius, in 282, due to inactivity and excess of food and wine, fell sick and died in the 55th year of his life. Eventually, his ashes were sent back to his son, Antigonus II, who conducted a funeral barge with the royal fleet all over Greece. Everywhere the funeral barge put to dock, people came out in droves and publicly mourned Demetrius's passing. But what was most saddening, according to Plutarch, was the sight of Demetrius's son, Antigonus II, who was bowed down and in tears. Eventually, when the funeral ended, Demetrius's ashes were interred in the city he had named after himself, Demetrius. But he's not dead yet. I'm just kidding, he's dead. That's it. He's done. But we'll be right back after these messages. Je m'appelle Demetrius. I besiege the cities. Demetrius. Sometimes I conquer the city. Sometimes I do not. At times I have a kingdom. At times I do not. Demetrius. I have not one wife, but five. And sin four. And sin three. The others I see no more. I love Demos but, and I cannot lie, and should you ask, I shan't deny Demetrius. I have big siege engines, I am a big, big man, I am a god, and then I am not. The Athenians love me, then they do not. My father was so proud, but he is dead now. Am I the problem? No. Je suis parfait. Demetrius. I am a lover. I am a warrior. Conquered. I conquer. Demetrius. I may besiege the cities, but fortune and love besieges me, Demetrius. This spring, a new fragrance by Demetrius Polyorgates. Smell like a conqueror, even when you are not. And we're back. Hey everybody, Dustin here. Before we get started with the rankings, we want to let you know we had a little technical difficulty, so if it sounds like we're underwater, don't worry, we're not drowning. Bye bye 
Okay, and we're back. Um, how many days has it been since we recorded this? We recorded Wednesday. My God. I think we've done a good job oh, no, no, because didn't. I just finished yeah. editing everything, yeah. so I'm fully refreshed and recapped on what he did mm-hmm. and ready to rank him. Right on. Wow, time is a mysterious wizard. So, here a we ago. One, two, three. Aristea. Battle prowess. How do you think, um, I'm not going to say old Demetrius. 50 is the new 40. I don't know. How do you How do you think um, adult <laughs> Demetrius did? Just How do you think Demetrius did as a warrior? It's interesting because listening back while I was editing, I feel like there are just as many moments of brilliance and fortitude as there are moments of kind of shake your head failures. So I almost feel like he breaks even, in my opinion, still struggling to determine what that means numbers-wise, I guess, a five? Well, it definitely was like a win some, lose some thing, right? It's like half and half. Yeah, win some, lose some, brilliant strategies with the siege machinery in some cases, and then in other cases, the siege machinery had moved a quarter of a mile in two months. Okay, let's talk about that, right, because as you, (laughs) Meredith, co-host, have said of your own free will and autonomy, and I now, Dustin, in my manner of kind of processing information and repeating back, but in no way trying to steal the glory from you. As you have said, it's, it, it, it is an intriguing thing. On the one hand, he is the besieger of cities, but on the other hand, <laughs> he's not the taker of cities. Um, I mean, he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like when it worked, it was great, but when it didn't, it was dumb. And I feel like in those instances where it didn't work, there was also no pausing to reflect on what could we uh. change. And I... Unto you, in response to you, as have said unto me, will say, you'll recall that we were talking about Eumenes and Antigonus. I told you, I like the generals who don't win every time because I think that the true medal of a general can be seen with how they deal with adversity. I feel like Demetrius, with some reservations, fails that category. I do too. Because I don't really ever feel like it was adversity so much as just poor tactical planning and an inability to change tactics when necessary. Like, I think he was great when he was, you know, early on under the guidance of his father, when he wasn't necessarily in charge, in charge. He's an example of the kind of person I've always talked about where it's like there are some people who who thrive in a number two position then it's not an insult it's like that's where they're good when they've got some supervision to kind of oversee some of their wild ideas but they're allowed to be in a in a, in a place where their creativity and talent can shine mm-hmm. you know it's like with a safety net like you just said um in the battle of paritakini Demetrius was not in command of the full right wing. He was in command of just the cavalry on the right wing. Antigonus was there to kind of watch him. Even when Demetrius was in charge of the right wing at the Battle of Gabiana two years later, Antigonus was still there. Now put him at Gaza? Can't do it. He gets routed by Ptolemy. Like you're saying, all his, I think you said this earlier, all of his advisors then were just like, no, do not fight Ptolemy. You're not ready. But he was impetuous. Yeah, I'm getting that vibe. 
Now, if I was to be fair, I would have to then remember that after he got slammed by Ptolemy, he did do a good job of holding it together until his dad got back. Same thing during the Babylonian War. But as soon as he left Athens every time, they said no. He failed the siege of Rhodes. He failed the siege of Athens. He barely completed the siege of Thebes because that was the the two-month quarter mile um, that'd be a really cool marathon, like a Demetrius marathon, where you have to, like, over the course of two months, you have to crawl as slow as you can. Well, it's funny you say that because I just kind of was struck by the idea of it took this machinery two months to go a quarter of a mile. What were his troops doing? Because, you know, like, that's minimal progress each day. So it's not even like, we'll march to here and you'll meet us in a couple of days. Like, you could have sat in the same spot for okay. two months and it would have still been an eyesight. Counterpoint, they probably were all pushing this giant siege engine. Oh, that's Because <laughs> he was saying, we're not making enough progress. Go push. And they're like, sir, we've, um, we don't, we've run out of room to push. Yeah. And, and you got, you know, Demetrius was the idiot. They're like, oh my, you're right. There's no more room to put men to push. Add to it. Build more. And then more men can push it. But sire, it weighs too much. Your Pythagorean sorcery has no role in this. I don't know. I was thinking you'd just tie ropes around other people's waists and have them kind of... No, yeah, that would be the logical thing. Running out. I'm running. saying Demetrius is not that smart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay, so when it's all said and done, all that crap, I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to be a little nicer than you. Usually I'm the mean one, I think. I'm going to give him a six. Okay. Because when, when he did well... It was good. It was awesome. And you don't get that high on no talent whatsoever. And like, remember, in the beginning of the episode, I say this is what it looks like when Alexander has bad luck. Mm, definitely. And I do feel like throughout the entire episode, I felt like I had gotten the store brand of Alexander instead of the name brand. All right. so He's white bread Alexander. 11 total. And Alexander is like whole wheat, whole grain. Sure. Eutychia. Success. <laughs> hey, Meredith. <laughs> How do you think he did as a ruler? Um, and do you believe it's my turn? But if, if the hamster is uh, spinning in your head, I'll, uh, I'll gladly. No, you go first. You. Okay. Um, well, I think he more or less sucks in this. I think he definitely gets going to get a C minus at best, D plus. So to review, I mean, to be fair, there's no account of whether, of how successful or unsuccessful his administration of Syria and Phoenicia was around 312, leading up to the Battle of Gaza. But if you recall, when Demetrius was in charge of the western part of the kingdom a few years later, around 310, 309, when his dad was in Babylon trying to deal with Seleucus, Wheatley and Dunn both state the fact that anything was left in the West when Antigonus came back is a testament to the talent of Demetrius. So it's got to be something. And he trusted his son, clearly, so there's got to be something there. Although, I think we might want to question Antigonus's parenting. He clearly did not set boundaries. <laughs> the kissing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then let's go to Athens. And it all went wrong. Anything that he had done well before administratively, out the crapper. And I'm and I look for this for the sake of time. We don't even need to go through it all again. All the honors that were passed for him, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was asking for. Skipping straight ahead to the top of the Eleusinian mysteries. The you're looking at me with confusion. 
No, no. I was just thinking that I feel like once out from under the guidance of his Mm -hmm. father and having so many yes men around him. He's bad for him. It just went to his head completely. That's what Plutarch said. To live the cush life. So why would he then think once his dad was dead that he had to man up administratively? And And I think in terms of like, you know, reflecting on his success as an actual ruler, the fact that his second most important city in Macedon gets conquered by someone else. And they're pretty quick to be like, guys, this, this guy is great. We should switch over. Exactly. Oh, there was that sick burn. Someone was like, Pyrrhus of all of them did the most to reflect the greatness of Alexander. Oh yeah. Whereas Demetrius especially was kind of pretending to it with the flash and the pomp. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that reminds me also, it's like, okay, if we, even if we were to be charitable, in Athens, what we mainly get accounts of are the extravagant honors given to him. The government of Athens, from what we can tell, is kind of doing its own thing. But when he became king of Macedon, oh my gosh. Like the being handed all the petitions and, and then throwing the river, them in the yeah. river. So I'm going to go ahead and say... I mean, you don't hold on to the kingdom for eight years or for nothing. And they seem to like him at first. So I'll just say, I'll give him a three. Yeah, I'd say maybe three. Because I think probably the fact that they, they did run as well as they did was down to pre-existing infrastructure. Yeah. So I guess a three for not completely dismantling the pre-existing infrastructure. He's a disgusting human He's being. He's a disaster. Yeah. I keep coming back to Democles, and that's just so awful Yeah, that it's like the first time I feel like there should be negative points in this category, because that was treatment of a citizen. I would agree. Because when we're talking about the actions of a ruler, that that would include the bad things they did and abuses of power, which would count against them. So so I think what I'll do with that frame of reference is I will drop my Eutychia by one, which just changes him to a five. I'll do the same. Okay. So he's a four. Mm-hmm. Akon. Image. You go first. Um, I'm going to pull up the images, and then I actually have some stuff to add to that. Okay. So you got what, four pictures for me. Yeah. Four pictures. Um, I was thinking we could go over the two bust okay. first. Okay, let's talk so, about the babies. One, no. Mm-hmm. One is bronze. One is marble. But, you know, quite the change from our last string of rulers. We have quite a few yes. contemporary depictions of him. Sure do. I feel like, you know, we've got the Alexander haircut. We've got that same kind of head tilty pose oh, yeah. as one of those Alexander the busts. Deep eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now what I thoroughly enjoy and I get a good chuckle out of, if you'll go to the last image in the email, the coin with yeah. um, Poseidon. So I feel like the two coins we have are a testament to living up the good life because in this one, he's probably like the most physically looking mm-hmm. person we've ever seen mm-hmm. like just clean cut slim like this is a guy that is busy running around fighting battles and then if you go to that first image which is the second coin 
I feel like that's just him having put on tons of weight from living the high life. That look happens. at his, yeah, look at his neck. Yeah. It's like he and swallowed a bullfrog. Oh. Uh, he's, a, he's a chunky man. Oh, dude, you are totally right about the eyes and the earlier coin. He's got big eyes, but he doesn't have that giant bulge under the eye. Mm-hmm. You're right. Prominent nose. They're giving him a little, a little lump there. And let's go back. He's got a prominent chin, a naked Poseidon on the back, but that's incidental. And now I'm going back to the old, oh my gosh, yeah. When you really look at him twice. Well, and I think an important thing to remember about this category isn't, are they pretty? Just, do we have anything left of them passed down through the ages? And so yeah. I would actually score him pretty highly because there are so many mm -hmm. depictions of him. And I feel like I am really getting an impression of what he looked like throughout his life. I agree, and I and I want to take that further. You know he would have had to have approved these coins. Yeah. So we, I think we can assume that when this was coming out, he looked at this representation of himself and said, yeah, that tracks. About a realistic depiction of themselves. Well, they had to emphasize certain characteristics for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one, he looks a little older here too. Like the face is more full. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I didn't know if that was just down to the angle. Like, this is a picture of this one in profile, and yeah. then the other bust is straight on. So, um, yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I hadn't paid that much attention to... I have some stuff to add. Okay. Okay, so this was um, kind of as you just said, when we're talking about Demetrius, one of the aspects about him that are unique in comparison to, some, to the, a lot of the previous people we've been discussing is how much information we have about his appearance. Mm -hmm. And how much the ancient world both remembered and saw fit to preserve. They wanted us to remember. So according to Wheatley and Dunn, Plutarch and Diodorus both comment on Demetrius's striking good looks. Plutarch, for instance, states that Demetrius grew up to be a tall man, although not so tall as his father. And both in form and in feature, he was so strikingly handsome that no painter or sculptor ever succeeded in fashioning a likeness of him. His features combined charm and seriousness, beauty, and a capacity to inspire fear. But hardest of all to represent was the blend in his appearance of the eagerness and fire of youth with a heroic aspect and an air of kingly dignity. Yeah, well, yeah. and you did say that Athens said he was the son of... Aphrodite and Poseidon because he was so, he was pretty. so pretty. Yeah. Yeah, so undeniably, must have been a good-looking guy. Um, you know, and Wheatley and Dunn follow that quote up, and they say that Plutarch probably was not exaggerating too much. So what what we're getting at here, it seems objectively. He's a pretty man. Demetrius was kind of hot. Yeah. Mm. And we have some depictions of him throughout the ages that may not be doing justice. Yeah. On that note, there were multiple statues and images of Demetrius that were made in the ancient world. Quite possibly 38 of them have survived. This includes the bronze statuette from the first century BCE, a marble herm from the Augustan period. Both of these were recovered from Herculaneum. There's the colossal bronze head. That might be the one you're talking about. I think so. The hunt frieze on the Ar Alexander sarcophagus. There's another representation there. The Getty bronze and multiple references to paintings and statues of Demetrius that may not have survived the ancient world. Building on the coins that you showed, Wheatley and Dunn uh, speculate that they would have been around 301 to 300 for the first one when he was right after, 
well, a few years after they were crowned king by uh, dear old dad. Mm -hmm. And then the next one was 295, 294 when he took control of Macedon. And as the authors say, Analysis of these portraits is to some degree subjective by nature, but the purported likenesses depict a somewhat fleshy face with a definite turned-up nose, high cheekbones, rounded jawline and chin, stern mouth, and determined demeanor. I love how they, when they do these descriptions of the coins. <laughs> determined demeanor. All right. So here's a list of friezes that de supposedly depict Demetrius. And I think this is what imply we have these today. The Prado Demetrius, the Delos, the one from Geneva, the Smith College Demetrius, the Louvre Demetrioi, the Copenhagen Demetrius, the Sikion Demetrius, the Vatican Diadox, and the Harvard Demetrius. And lastly, a painting from a Roman villa that belonged to Publius Fanius Sinistor near Boscoriale on Mount Vesuvius supposedly depicts Demetrius. Mm. So that being said, I do believe it was your turn to pose the number. I'd say an eight. I was just going to go for ten. No, yeah, I'd say eight, too, because Alexander is the standard. And um, and we have Philip II's actual facial reconstruction. Got his body. I'll go for an eight. Okay. Cool. Mania. Craziness. The moment we've all been waiting for. This dude did some crazy stuff. And I think maybe we should speak on this when we're giving points for Mania. These are not necessarily uh, congratulatory or compliments to them. If they did crazy stuff, the point is there to say, wow, that's weird, or that's that's crazy. Not necessarily that it's good at all, because... I, I don't care that he had multiple wives. I'm thinking more that you're given the privilege of having an apartment in the uh, Parthenon to share with your sister Athena, and you instead have orgies with prostitutes. Yep. And there was also in Lamia. She made this giant lavish dinner, and then gave the bill to the city of Athens. Like, he was still party to it. And then there was the time he demanded 250 talents so that Lamia and his other girlfriends could buy soap and cosmetics. See, stories like that make me chuckle. Of uh, the prostitutes and the temples and having the city pay for your girlfriend's catering and... My man's got in. toots living in the Parthenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly, I wanted an excuse to say toots. Throwing your... Citizens' petitions into the war. Making the Athenian delegation wait for two years. Oh, that was good. <laughs> I get the impression from the source it wasn't a flex. It wasn't a power move. I get the impression he just forgot. Probably. <laughs> I mean. As he told the old lady, I don't have time. Well, stop being killed. It's a good old lady voice. I don't know. I think only a crazy man accepts the kind of honors that were poured on him. And Plutarch says, like, look, what this did was this made an unstable man. Mm-hmm. Even less stable. Mm. Like, he was a wasn't susceptible good man, even more corruptible. Yeah, there you go. I think it's my turn to go first. I'll take that. Okay. <laughs> because we know what's coming. I'll say six. I mean, again. No, that's fair. I, yeah. I was just um, doing a quick scan over. Alexander liked to bash people's head into the walls, so we didn't get any of that here. No. Yeah, I can go six, so that's 12. All right. Kronos. Time. All right, I actually did some math, but this is an episode, or this is a ruler, where we kind of need to talk about it. All right, my instinct would be to start counting at 306 when he and his dad first became king. Um, now I can give you my reasoning for that, or you can counter and we can go back and forth. No, I, I mean, I think that makes sense oh, as yeah? a start time. But it's more of, 
what do we count for the rest of it? Mm-hmm. Right. And then my instinct in, then is to continue. And even after Antigonus was defeated, when he's on the run, then I would say, I feel like he's still king. King without a kingdom, but he never stops calling himself king. And I would understand if you would say that the moment he became king of Macedon, that was a different kingship or something like that. I have no problem looking at him as having an, a continuous time as king from 306 up to when he was kicked out of Macedon in... Uh, 288? Yeah, I think it was 288. But look, he was calling himself king to the very end. When Seleucus did that boss move, that speech, even he kind of alluded to the fact that here was a guy pretending to be a king. I, I would say 288 is a cutoff. Okay. And, and our, our views may change as the series progresses and we have more defined categories. But right now, all these territories are so up in the air I feel like the idea of like my empire, my area is like so abstract. Oh, definitely. That so long as you have like one city that's like, yeah, that's our guy. You can call yourself king. Well, if that's the case, then um, basically up until he got captured by Seleucus in 285. Because I remember that there was the reference that Antigonus the second, his son, mm-hmm. was in charge of the cities still loyal to Demetrius. Would they have called him king? He was definitely calling himself king. And he's dealing with Greek cities here, so the idea is not that he's king of these cities. Remember, he goes in with this whole liberation propaganda. Yeah. And so it's more like you have been liberated by King Demetrius. When he reformed the Corinthian League, it was the king as the hegemon. So he's not the king of these cities, but he is the king that is controlling these cities. It's, like you said, totally abstract. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think... I would feel better <laughs> and able to sleep tonight <laughs> if I use uptalk to say I'm going to, I'd like to give him to 285. Okay. I mean, like what's three years, three years difference? Right. So if that's the case, then by my calculations, that's um, 21 years. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter now. because Which like, we would cap it. Yeah. 20. 20. Yeah. So, right. and then the last one is catastrophe. Did his ass get assassinated, or did he die a natural death? He died a natural he death. He himself to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you assassinate yourself? Well, I don't think that's what... <laughs> <laughs> like slow-acting time release. I'm going to show them. In three years, I'll be dead. I don't... No. I, would, no. I don't get the impression this was suicide. This was no, 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 no. just... Just depression. <laughs> a continuation of the excess and the hedonism and the depression. And for that, you get a point. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, I don't know what message that sends, and I'm not going to entertain it. Have you been doing any calculations? Yes. What you got for me? That gives him a 64. Oh, my. So uh, he's fourth. Oh, Uh, that tracks. Well, with Alexander, albeit they're not eligible for the competition, but, you know, Alexander is still holding first, Philip II is still holding second, and then third is Antigonus. All that tracks to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And then Cassander's in fifth at 62, so just a two-point difference there. So really, it's the length of time. Well, yeah, The Mania and the Akon are what really are carrying him. Well, no, there's also the fact that this is the first time that we chose to take points away because of an outrageous action. But I'm saying he's still... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's not just thanks to the length of time. It's also, like, he would have been farther ahead of Cassander if he hadn't been a scumbag. Oh, true. Right. That's all I'm saying. I see your point Yeah. Yeah. That sinks in my head, you know? 
Mm-hmm. I was worried that somehow with the math, he was going to come out ahead of his dad or or ahead of even Philip because that would have been weird. Yeah. But this ranking actually kind of works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, Meredith, would you stop someone in the street and tell them about Demetrius? Does he meet the Alexander standard? I don't know. I can tell you what I think, but I feel like if I did, it would like sweat. It would influence your decision. So no, I'd like to know what you think because he. I mean, to me, I listen to it and it's a fascinating story and everything and yet I feel like he's still just like net zero like for as high of a score as he's gotten I just feel like everything good is so evenly offset by everything bad that it's just like were you even there well that's what Wheatley and Dunn said if you recall from the beginning um you know here's someone who all of his life clearly was aspiring to that greatness that renown of Alexander and ironically was the most unsuccessful of all the Diadokoi. I would give it to him. And here's why, if I may. <laughs> no one can see it, but Meredith's just like, eh, eh. She's like, just kind of frozen with like the perplexity and it's kind of... I would give him the Alexander Standard and here's why. In my mind, when we talk about the legacy of Alexander the Great, we're actually not really talking about his military conquests only. It's his character. It's his charisma. It's just that he's just so weird. And he did so many strange things that are just so... I, I, I know that n- no one except for nerds like us can appreciate it, but like in the nerddom, he's just such a conversation starter. Because mm-hmm. there's just always something to talk about with what Alexander did. And that's the same with Demetrius. The only thing here is just instead of like, oh my God, can you believe Alexander get, did that? With Demetrius, is like, dude, can you believe he did that? Like, he's just so dumb, so much. But then he's kind of paradoxically had so much talent potential that it's it sticks in your head. And for that reason, I give him the Alexander Standard. Okay, I, I, I have one final argument in favor. <laughs> Alexander took a giant four-foot arrow through the chest, right? True. Demetrius took one through the, the jaw, jaw and the neck and... For that alone, he's really working hard at emulating Alexander. Okay. Let's give it to him. All right. Do you think those wounds healed? Yeah, I was wondering about that with the one through the jaw. What if he was like an earliest version of Tracheotomy Man? Like he could just like breathe. I don't think. The hole in his neck. (sighs) I don't think he's going to do well in the playoffs. No, no, he's going to go down. They're going to like gang up on him and kick him out. They're going to take take this kid's lunch money. Yeah, like his father alone would kick oh, him yeah. out. And Antigonus is coming back! <laughs> oh, and he's spanking his son! He's telling him he's such a dis- Oh my god! Demetrius is crying! <laughs> Alright, so... And if you enjoyed our show, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast... Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, X, formerly Twitter, at Alexander Standard Pod, Blue Sky at Alex Standard Pod, and then you can always email us at Alexander Standard Pod at gmail.com. All right, well, that was Demetrius. How do you feel about yourself after talking about him? Dirty. Oh, it's just gross. I know that, like, but that's 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 what's coming. <laughs> that's what's coming. <laughs> that's what's coming when we get to the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and everything like that. That's what's coming. The Antigonids are pretty tame, but there's some stupid in the middle in the beginning. All right, so Demetrius was fun. The next episode, 
is one that we have all been waiting for. Dearest friends and listeners, the next episode is going to be none other than Ptolemy. Soter. Egypt man. Let's um, go. Let's go. And I tell you, I have been writing the commercial for him for over a year. Yeah. So this this is Christmas came late for Dustin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so until that time, this has been The Alexander Standard. Good night, everybody. Wow. Our cat. Our podcast. Yeah, yes. We're all dead here. Yes. Yeah, your knees. Don't you look back over here. You eat. I hope that.